places where those who seek to undermine the credibility of the Bible, what they point to uh, as being contradictions. Their goal normally is basically to say, see, here's a contradiction. Can't trust the Bible. Throw the whole thing away. Don't need to consider Christianity or believe in Christ. So what I have for you in your notes is a paragraph which is really similar to what a lot of the kinds of things a lot of individuals say. So it reads this way. A long, long time ago, I used to be a Christian. Now, even though that may be giving you some true historical facts about an individual, the goal of these types of things is normally to uh, manipulate and maybe lend credibility to a non-credible statement. In other words, the idea is, is because the individual used to be a Christian, you really can't say anything against what they're about to say. Uh, so a long, long time ago, I used to be a Christian. Then again, I also used to believe in Santa Claus. So you, you get the immediate connection he's trying to make. All right? Again, that's done on purpose. That's to make you think, uh, or maybe to put in your mind, that if you believe in God or you believe in Jesus, it's no different than believing in Santa Claus. That it's, you know, in other words, you don't have any smarts, it's anti-intellectual, all the rest. All those are assumptions. But again, things are said that way to kind of either put you on the defensive or catch you off guard. Uh, and normally, not always, but normally, uh, things like that are said because the, the desire is, is to kind of to win the argument or win the point before any kind of dialogue actually takes place. So then again, I used to believe in Santa Claus. The thing that primarily killed my faith is that I read enough of the Bible to realize that it teemed with contradictions and thus couldn't possibly have been divinely inspired. So again, uh, it's a, what we call a very pregnant sentence. All right, so the individual is once again claiming that he had real faith, then says, I read enough of the Bible. It's, it's, like, it's similar to a person saying, then I read the Bible for myself. The implication is, somebody had pulled the wool over my eyes. When I read, then I realized. Right? So the implication then is that for you, if you've not read enough of the Bible or read the Bible, that's what's happened to you. And for a lot of individuals that go to church, a lot of them really haven't read much of the Bible. And so they're kind of at a disadvantage. And so when they hear that, you know, like, well, okay. And so they're, they're already kind of maybe agreeing with the individual, um, at least kind of in attitude. And then the individual says, it's teamed with contradictions, and therefore it could not have been divinely inspired. In other words, God didn't write it. And then he has AKA, or also known as, the infallible words of a perfect God that was dictated to human transcribers. So then this individual uh, basically goes, goes on and says, here's a pair of verses that are completely incompatible. So there's a bunch of websites like this. I got this off this guy's website. And what he does is he now is going to begin to give us proof. He's not going to show us where these contradictions are. And the idea is, is that even though you only, he's only going to show one, for example, even if he shows ten, that's more than what you need. Just throw it away. No need to feel guilty. There's nothing to it. So we want to take a close look at what he says is a contradiction. All right? Uh, because I believe that a very high majority of these supposed contradictions, like at least 90%, they're bogus. And you don't have to have a law degree to figure it out. Right? There's, there's, it's really, in many cases, it's very simple. One of the rules you need to always remember is this. And, it's, and all Christians need to remember this rule when you read the Bible for yourself and seeking to understand what it says. You always want to be aware of the context. It's the most important thing there is. Context changes everything. All right, I used to use this illustration when I was teaching a lot in the jail. Uh, and guys who've been in jail understand that this can happen, where you're in jail for certain charges, and maybe the police are still investigating something else they want to pin on you. Uh, or maybe you're looking for something else to pin on you because they want you to go away maybe for a longer time, for whatever the reason. So let's say that, that uh, um, you've been in jail, you're waiting for your trial, and uh, you, know, you, uh, uh, you write me a letter, you write, you write, a, letter, write a letter to me, 
uh, and you're just basically kind of saying that you know that you really appreciate the, the program that we're running, all that type of uh, types of things. And you're telling me and explain to me how the program is helping you to think better and think different. So let's say in the course of the letter, you begin to describe to me an old movie that you were watching. And for whatever reason, you, you tell me that when you watch this old movie, there is this one character that you really like, and you like just the way he sounds for whatever the reason, and there is this one scene where he said to whoever, I'm going to kill you. And you kind of just, just kind of describe the scene, and then you kind of move on with the letter. So let's say that that letter is sitting on my desk, and for whatever reason, a police officer comes to my office, and he's just kind of asking me some questions about different things for whatever the reason, and I have to leave to either go get on the phone or maybe use the bathroom. And so he's looking on my desk, and he sees this letter from this inmate. And he knows who this inmate is, and he didn't like him. And so he kind of does this. And he sees the sentence, I want to kill you. So he, you know, takes a picture of his phone. Next thing you know, a couple of days goes by. This inmate's called out. They basically go through the whole routine. They arrest him. They're like, what are you arresting me for? I'm already in jail. It's a new charge. Terroristic threatening. Who, who did I threaten? The chaplain. Can't believe you're threatening a chaplain. You said you want to kill him. I never said that. Oh, no. Not only did you say that, you put it in writing. We got you. And so let's say that for whatever reason, you know, it ends up going, going to court. All right, well, when it goes to court, once your lawyer sees the evidence, your lawyer can actually take a nap. He, it doesn't matter what the prosecutors say. He knows he already has this one. So, you know, the prosecutor gets up and he calls a handwriting expert and he says, you know, can you compare the handwriting? Did this, did this individual, did he write this? Oh, absolutely. It is clear he wrote it. And then the prosecutor says, can you please read the highlighted sentence? And of course, he only wants him to read the highlighted sentence. And he says, I want to kill you. And the jury's like, oh. I mean, they can't believe it. Why does this guy want to kill the chaplain? You know, I mean, that chaplain's just trying to help him out. He wants to kill him. Meanwhile, you know, the inmate may be nervous, but his, his lawyer's still sleeping. He just, it's just like kind of whatever. And so then when the, when the prosecution finally gets done, your lawyer gets up. And he says, Your Honor, my, my client will admit he wrote it. And the jury is like, man, what is going on here? And he says, I would like to have permission to enter into evidence the entire letter. So when he reads the letter, all the members of the jury are listening to what's clearly the, now the context. He's explaining to me a, a movie that he watched that he liked and that it was this character who made this statement. And the moment that's all read, the jury goes, <sighs> in other words, in their mind, it's so obvious he wasn't threatening the chaplain. He was telling them a story about this dumb movie he was watching. All he had to do was put it in context, changed everything. In fact, the prosecutor would probably get in trouble for bringing that thing to court because he's wasting everybody's time and everybody's money. In fact, the judge might scold him. Uh, for doing that kind of thing because that's just a waste of time. So context is really important. When it comes to these things, that it comes right back to that. And context, for us as we read the Bible, is normally uh, you want to get a, a good a handle on the context. If, if you're looking at a particular verse, you want to read the verses before and after it. Sometimes we have to read the entire chapter and sometimes we have to read part of the book to kind of, you know, to make sure that you have a good, accurate grasp of what's going on. He could so, have brought you up there and you could have well, that's true. He could have, but there was no sense. Okay. All right. So, so uh, looking at Luke twelve ten, the scripture says, and again, I'm reading this out of the King James. He says, and whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemes against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. Most people understand that. They may not understand all what it means, but it's pretty clear. Then he quotes Romans 10, verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in the blog, or whatever this website this guy was writing, he said, how can these things be true? He's saying opposite things. On one hand, we have a, a sin 
that cannot be forgiven. And on the other hand, we have a verse that says, whoever calls on God will be saved. Clear contradiction. Both those things cannot be true at the same time. The Bible is lying. You've been deceived. Throw it away. So, time out. Let's take a look at this. All right. When Jesus is speaking in Luke 12, 10, this is where you have to get what we call the broader context. So the context of verse 10 is Christ has been accused of being demon-possessed. He's been accused of being demon-possessed because of a miracle that he did. He performed a miracle where he cast a demon out of an individual. The individual was mute, could not speak. And so uh, many of the Pharisees and their apprentices and different things, a lot of individuals that tried to cast this demon out, they could not do it. The Jewish, in Jewish theology, there was even a teaching that if a person was mute, you would be unable to cast a demon out because you couldn't get the name of the demon, right? You had to get the name of the demon to be able to go through some kind of chant to have a chance to be able to cast the demon out. Now they did teach uh, in Jewish theology that when the Messiah would come, he'd be able to do it pretty easy. And so Jesus actually did that miracle twice. The first time Jesus did that miracle, the Pharisees uh, were the first ones to accuse him of being demon-possessed. Now, they had, they had to do that, all right? And the reason why, historically, is, is this group of Pharisees were following Jesus, and they didn't like Jesus. They wanted him gone. He was upsetting everything. And so they had to find a way to charge him with doing something that would break Jewish law so they could turn the people against him because the people liked him. I mean, he's doing miracles and all kinds of stuff. Jesus was becoming popular. And so when Jesus performs that miracle uh, in the story, some of the people who are watching began to ask out loud among themselves, could this be the son of David? So the son of David is a messianic term. It's a title. So what they were asking themselves is, could this be the Messiah? Why would they ask that? Well, again, most of them when they go to the synagogue on uh, Sabbath day through the years, they have learned that there were certain miracles that only the Messiah could do. And so if this guy does a miracle that the teacher said only the Messiah could do, that would then mean he might be the Messiah. So if they're going to say he's not the Messiah, they're going to have to be able to explain how he then can do this miracle that only the Messiah could do. And so, they, on the spot, they said, well, we know how he did it. He's possessed by Beelzebub. That was basically the statement. Uh, and then when the, miracles happen, the miracle happens a second time, and the second time it takes place, again, the people that are watching ask the same question. It's a little different story, uh, because in this next time he does it, then some of the other people in the crowd who were aware of what Jesus had done before, some of them then answered, oh, no, 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 he, they, he's not the son of David. He, he's possessed by Beelzebub. So in each of those instances, that is when Jesus brings up this sin against the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now that's important because there's a lot of bad information floating around within Christianity as to what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That would be that would you would need to know that because according to this, you can't be forgiven. All right, so that's kind of good to know. And I've talked to people who said I can't get saved. I go, why not? I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Like, well, what do you mean you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And they go, well, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit, so I, there's no forgiveness for me. And so that's when I have to explain everything to them because I don't want, I want them to know I'm not, I'm not just saying off the top of my head, oh, no, you're not, you're fine, you can get saved. I want to be able to show them from the Scripture. So when it comes to this, then, is we have to ask ourselves, so how would we define what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Because oftentimes you just take the words Look at the definition and go, okay, that's what this is. All right, like you take, like, you know, people say, well, how, well, how do you blaspheme God? Well, there's actually several ways you can blaspheme God. Attributing sin to God, saying that God was dishonorable, saying that God lied. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do that, but you'll be blaspheming God. So how do you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? We all would think it would be the same kind of idea. But what's interesting is, is that sometimes the, the context or the way, the way a word or phrase is used would give you the definition. And so when you read through the Bible, you read the entire Bible, you will notice that there's only one person who ever, ever mentions blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. No one else ever mentions it. That's very important. Number two, 
The only time Jesus ever mentions that sin, the only time, is when he's accused of being demon-possessed. Number three, the only time he's ever accused of being demon-possessed is when he heals a, or when he performs a particular kind of miracle. And what is that miracle? Casting out of a person who can't speak. All right, so that gives us the context all right, of when this miracle was performed and helps us to understand what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What it appears to be, pretty clearly, is it's attributing the work of the Holy Spirit done through Jesus to Satan. So it's not just in general attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, because that's not how it's used. It's only used when they accuse the work of the Holy Spirit being done through Jesus as being attributed to Satan. So that's very important. All right? So which would mean, at least today, you can't do that because Jesus isn't here performing miracles. In fact, as long as you were born after 33 AD, you were pretty much in the clear. Right? Because, you know, Jesus died, rose again, went to heaven, hasn't come back yet, so you, you would not be able to do that. Now, there is some discussion when it comes to that sin as to really whether or not, and it's another question that some people don't think of, and that is, is this a sin that an individual can commit? Now, I believe personally that this is not an individual sin. When you continue to read through Luke and through Matthew, what begins to um, become clear is that when Jesus was on earth and teaching, teaching, the, uh, uh, teaching Israel and performing miracles, he was seeking to prove to, to the nation of Israel that he was the Messiah. So when he was rejected by the Pharisees and then by the people, that all began with this miracle. That's when the official rejection of Jesus as the Messiah really began. And remember there's a story that Jesus, or an illustration that Jesus gives. He talks about a man who has uh, a demon and the demon is cast out and the demon ha looks and finds nowhere else to go. Then he comes back to the, to the man who's been clean and finds the, finds the house, his body, clean and put in order and he brings back seven more with him that are worse. And that's an illustration not really of the individual, of the nation of Israel. Uh, and when Jesus was on earth, what we learn is that there was a lot of demonic activity when Jesus was on earth uh, in the nation of Israel. And of course, there's all these encounters Jesus has with the demons. And of course, Jesus wins every single one of them. All right? there's, not a, there's not much of a contest uh, and whatnot. But they, they, re, they rejected Christ. And the reason why I believe that it's a national sin is because, again, the nation of Israel was punished for their rejection of Jesus as Messiah. Because the invitation for salvation went out to every single individual, period. Just like it says in Romans. And we know when you read through the book of Acts, for example, if you get, the book, if you get in Acts in the chapter 6, uh, in there there's a story where um, the apostles were, were doing a lot of things, and one of them they were feeding the widows, and some widows didn't get fed, and there was a, some conflict in the church. And that was when... Um, the, the disciples and the apostles appointed some men to be deacons to take care of that. And when you read uh, the story in Acts 6, after they appoint these other men to begin to take care of the widows, the apostles were able to give themselves over to more prayer, studying and teaching of the Bible, and the church began to grow much more quickly. And then there's a little phrase in there that says, and even some of the priests became believers. And so the idea there was, is that um, when a priest would become, when a priest of Israel would become a believer, he would lose his livelihood, he would lose his inheritance, he would lose everything. It wasn't a small thing when a priest would become a believer in Jesus Christ. He's, he's losing, he loses it all. And so, uh, but it's not too far-fetched to think that in that first generation of those who are coming to Christ, some of them were the very ones who were screaming for his crucifixion, some of them were the very ones who were agreeing with this crowd uh, that he, his works were done by Beelzebub, and yet there's nothing in the Bible that even indicates that an individual can do a sin that cannot be forgiven. Now, let me just add a note to that. Some people will say this. Well, what we do know is that unbelief cannot be forgiven. I'm like, eh, not so fast. Here's my question. Before you became a Christian, were you believing or were you unbelieving? You were unbelieving, right? When you place your faith in Christ, 
You are forgiven for all of your sin, including what? Your unbelief. It was previous unbelief. You're forgiven. So when we say, oh, well, everyone, you can be forgiven for everything except unbelief. We've got a problem. That means nobody can get saved. If you die in unbelief, that seals your faith. But no one goes to hell only because they've rejected Christ. Because you will be punished for what? All of your sins. Not just, you know, God doesn't stand in heaven and say, well, you rejected Christ, I'm going to punish you for that. No, everything comes back. Your disobedience to your parents, the the way you broke the law, the grudges that you held. I mean, this list goes on and on. And you are punished for all of those things. All right? So... When it comes to the individual then, uh, there is no sin that an individual can commit that they cannot be forgiven for. Right? That's basic Christian theology. We believe Jesus died for all sin. When it comes to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it does say it shall not be forgiven, but it seems to be a national sin. And you notice, and what many will believe when you continue to read through the New Testament and look at history, is that... um, Jesus pronounced a sentence on that generation that rejected him. And that was when he goes into um, uh, when you see the city surrounded and you know its destruction is near and he goes through all of that. They were going, they were going to be destroyed uh, because of this sin, of this rejection of Christ. And then when you look at Roman history, you find out that... Um, get the year, I think it was 69 AD, which would have been these two generations, or two main two generations that rejected Christ. The Romans got tired of the Jewish rebellion. They, they marched to Jerusalem. Even though they had already had conquered the whole area, they were going to have to teach the Jews a lesson. They surrounded the city of Jerusalem. I think, I'm not sure if the siege began in 67 or 68 AD, but it's around that time. And so a siege is, they put armor around your, your city, no one gets in, no one gets out. So when they did that, uh, the Jewish believers knew what that meant because they remembered the words of Jesus. Now, they didn't know how they were going to get out of this because the place was surrounded, but they knew what that meant. Well, it just so happened that uh, in the late part of 68 AD, Caesar died. When Caesar died, the general that was overseeing the army and the siege was going to be appointed Caesar. They broke the siege, they go back to Rome. He gets appointed Caesar. When that takes place, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem split. They said, it's time to get out of here. Meanwhile, the other Jews that were there were rejoicing. God has delivered us. The Roman siege is over. We've been saved. But they obviously didn't believe the words that Jesus said. So all of the Jewish believers split. 69 AD, the general who became Caesar, his son became the general of this one army. And guess what happened? Back to Jerusalem. They surrounded it. Uh, And then in 70 AD, they got tired of waiting, and they went in and they mowed them down. And uh, it has been recorded that when they went in, 1,100,000 Jewish people were slaughtered. And according to Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, not one single Jewish Christian died by the sword of Rome because they all had left. If you remember the story of Masada, I don't know if you ever heard that story, there was this big, uh, it was a a natural fortress and palace that Solomon had built in the desert called Masada. And a lot of the Jews, about 800 of them, had escaped during that time the siege was broken, they escaped and they went to to Masada and they were living there. And so after the uh, Roman army had wiped out the citizens of Jerusalem, they then went after this group that had escaped. And so it took them several years to build, because you had to build a ramp to get to, uh, to Masada because there was only one way in and all the people were already there and you couldn't bring an army up ropes and all that. They would get picked off. So they built this ramp, which took three years to build this ramp. And so what, the, what those Jews did and why the story is famous is that when Rome finally finished the ramp and they began to move up that ramp to, to knock down the gate and to go in and kill all of those um, Jewish people, they had all committed suicide. And so when they came in, uh, everybody was already dead. Now, according to legend, whoever the general was that helped to build that ramp went nuts. He lost it. I mean, he literally went insane because they had spent three years for nothing. 
<laughs> it was just, there's no one to kill. They're already dead. Uh, but that was just a very, in fact, they even made a movie. I don't know how accurate the movie is, but you, know, you could probably rent it. It was an old is movie. Is it in the Bible, too? Uh, Masada's not, no. But we know from history that's what took place. Oh, okay. All right. So the thing is, is that um, uh, all that all that entails, all that information comes all the way back to this, this verse and this issue of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so it was a really major event uh, in the life of Christ. So sometimes it can be easy to overlook because you don't know all the connections, but that's what took place. Again, there's no contradiction there then with Romans because it's true. Whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. So even if you're in that group yelling for his crucifixion or you're in that group that's saying he does this by Baal, if you ask, you're forgiven because it was the nation that was not going to be forgiven and the nation was punished by God uh, for the sin of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. So it's an apparent contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Uh, and even if you don't buy into the idea that it's a national sin and you want to insist, nope, I believe a person can commit that sin. Well, it is very limited by how the term is used. And basically, unless Jesus is here as a human being performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would have to attribute that to being him being demonized. That is an impossibility because he's not doing that. You still can't commit that sin. So it's not any other thing, because you can read other books, and they'll say, oh yeah, blasphemy Spirit is this, or this, or this, and those, they don't have any biblical foundation for that. Because um, if they do, you really do have a problem. Right? And the problem is, if there is a sin that you can commit that cannot be forgiven, then that alters not just this verse in the Bible. There's a lot of problems that we have that even affects the way we think about the death of Jesus. So there's, it's a theological can of worms, uh, to say the least. Uh, so again, it, it, on the surface, there's people who buy into that. Oftentimes, people who are looking at a contradiction, they just want there to be a contradiction. And that is, oh yeah, I read, I read it, there's contradictions, I don't believe. Uh, so most of the time, maybe always, if you happen to be in a conversation or you hear someone say that they don't believe the Bible or they don't believe in Christianity and the Bible is full of contradictions, most of the time, that person is simply repeating what they've heard someone else say. What they heard someone else say is, yeah, the Bible is full of contradictions. And it may be a high probability that that person was only repeating what they heard someone else say. Because if you ask individuals, well, can you show me where the contradictions are? They show you this, again, no need to panic. You say, okay, and you may not be able to answer right away. If you, you, know, if you didn't know all these things in the beginning, you're like, oh, it looks like it's a problem. Just relax. God's not afraid of questions. People have been attacking the Bible for a long time. Just take a deep breath and say, you know what? Can you give me some time? Let me do some study. Let me do some research. Because if you're right, yeah, I need to renounce Christ. But if you're wrong, you may need to renounce your atheism or whatever they believe in. All right? And then you go back and do the research. But, you want, but here's the thing. Get them to agree that they will talk to you about it again after you do your research. Because... I mean, we've talked before, sometimes people are not exactly intellectually honest. They don't really want to know the answer. Right? Many people do not believe in Christ because they can't. They don't believe in Christ because they don't want to. That's, that's kind of what it boils down to. They don't want to. Um, so that's one. So uh, next is this one. This is a comment on another website. And so this individual says this. Another thing that ultimately made no sense to me was the whole Old Testament and New Testament conundrum. So what he means by that is there are those who say that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. Some will say that, God, that the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and the God of the New Testament is full of love and peace and that those things contradict. That's not really true, but that's what they say. Uh, the quick answer to that one, when people want to say that the God of the New Testament is, is a God of peace and love, I just say, have you read Revelation? Because there's, there's not a whole lot of peace there. There's a lot of bloodshed and people dying. Uh, but nonetheless, so he says this. He says, um, between the two, basically, God actually changes his mind. Then he'll say this. In Leviticus, God lays down a bunch of laws and calls them everlasting. And that's true. Uh, in Leviticus, in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, uh, the law of Moses, it's, it's the law that God gave to Moses, um, is given and explained. 
Uh, there's 613 laws total. So you know, even when we talk about the Ten Commandments, the ten is ten. It's ten out of 613. There's just a, there's 613 of them, and God says they are everlasting. He says then in the New Testament we suddenly hear this. So again, I call that um, inflammatory language. Like there's this big shock suddenly. You know, the Bible says, well, it's, it's not like that. But it, this is what it says. For if that first covenant, that's the covenant that God made with, with um, Abraham, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And that's, that's Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. So he says, so God made a deal with the Hebrews that had faults in it. So is God imperfect? Well, that's really a stretch, to say the least. Um, but uh, the, now the quick answer to that is the law that God gave to Israel was to Israel only. But what the point he's trying to make is that God had to bring along a second covenant because the first one had problems or there were faults. And that would mean God's not perfect, et cetera, et cetera. So with that being said, um, we have to look at some more, uh, think about this a little more. So Turn to Hebrews 8, if you're not there already. Hebrews chapter 8. All right. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 and begin to, to explain. Uh, and the goal is to kind of give us a good context of what Hebrews 8 says, because that will help us to understand uh, the answer we're going to give concerning this covenant that God made with Israel and the meaning of this idea that uh, it was not faultless or that there was error in it. So beginning in verse 1, this is now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary, and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. So he's speaking of Jesus, and he's telling us that Jesus is a high priest, that Jesus has, uh, that he has uh, sat down at the right hand uh, on the throne of God in heavens, and talks about the sanctuary and this true tabernacle. Verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, therefore it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So he goes back into the Old Testament and basically pronounces to them what they know to be true. That if you serve as a priest, the priest had to offer sacrifices. And you go through the Old Testament and there's all kinds of sacrifices they had to make. The most important ones really are the ones where they were making a sin offering. They had to make sure that it was the people approached God, were on the right terms with God, that they recognized that they had sinned, that they had done evil, both as individuals and a nation. And the blood of the animals did not remove their sin, but it covered their sin. And so there was, in a sense, forgiveness temporarily while they're waiting for the ultimate sacrifice to come. And that would have been, obviously, the sacrifice of Jesus, which is what the writer's going to get to. So he says, so if every high priest had to do this, he says then, this priest had to have something to offer. Verse 4, now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So he's just simply trying to explain to them that the tabernacle they have on earth is a copy of the one in heaven, and that uh, if Jesus was a priest on earth, and that would mean that he would be from the, remember Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, he was not from the tribe of Levi. The only individuals who could serve as a priest were from those who were from the tribe of Levi. But Jesus can serve as a high priest because Hebrews also explains that he was of a different order. So there was an order of priests that had become priests because they were appointed. It wasn't based on who your parents were. That was Melchizedek. Now, so you go back into Genesis, you have this guy named Melchizedek. He just shows up out of the blue. He's the king of a city and Abraham sees him and the Bible says that this guy was a priest of the Most High God, and Abraham pays tithes to this guy. So he was, a, he was not a priest because of his uh, pedigree. 
He was appointed by God. Jesus is also a priest, appointed by God. All right, so that's, that's the, the main thing he's, he's just kind of reminding them of and telling them about when it comes to this. And then he couldn't also serve as a priest because, A, he was from the wrong tribe. And then also the chief, uh, also one of the, the things that a priest would have to do is before he would offer the sacrifice for the nation, he would have to make a sacrifice for himself. He would have to have an animal slaughtered for his sins because uh, he was a sinner. Well, Jesus wouldn't need to do that. Jesus didn't sin. But then we go on uh, again. These things, verse 5, these serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he was the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you now why he says he's the mediator of a better covenant, and that's this. When God made the covenant with, with um, Abraham and then with Moses, there was no provision or way for the people to become believers and be forgiven of their sin. All right? that, that had to come later. So the bottom line is, is that a better covenant was needed, one that would actually bring about salvation to the individuals. And that's what he's writing about here. All right? So then he goes on, verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, so faultless then doesn't mean here, when he says that it, was fault, that it wasn't faultless, it doesn't mean that it, that it contained error. There's no error in the covenant. But it was, it was unable to, it was never intended to do this, but it was unable to complete. All right, so for example, when God gave the law, the law of Moses to Israel, Romans explains to us some of the reasons why God gave the law. And one of the reasons that God gave the law to Israel was, number one, to inform them as to what sin was. Number two, it was to show them that it was impossible for them to keep the law. Because also, it's also in Hebrews what says, if you break the law in one point, you've broken the whole thing. Because even though there's 613 laws, those 613 laws represent one standard, perfect holiness. So it doesn't matter if you break the one in the middle, or the one on each end, you've broken the standard. So you're not going to make it. All right? So that's what he wants them to understand. All right, when it comes to this then, also, uh, so he was unable to bring them to salvation. That's why, again, that's why they were looking for the Messiah to come, uh, and why the Bible mentions the Messiah coming. All right, so again, so if it was faultless, or if it was able to do this, there would not be a need for a second one. He says, but finding fault with the people, he says, look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So again, you notice in verse 8, even though he mentions the fault in verse 7, in verse 8, the fault's with the people. It's not with the covenant, it's with the people, because they're unable to keep it. So he says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by their hands to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I disregarded them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. So again, we, we find out what's the problem with the covenant. The people couldn't keep it. God delivered them. He took them out of Egypt. He did all these things. God had to disregard them because why? They could not do it. If you read the Old Testament, it is filled with story after story after story of the people just messing up. And then later on, they're punished. Then later on, they basically say they're sorry. They ask God to forgive them. God forgives them. He restores them. Everything is great for a while. And then what do they do? They either start worshiping idols or whatever. And it just, it just goes, it's on repeat over and over again. And uh, so that's, that's, you know, they all, they all were very much aware of their own history. So they knew that was true. Verse 10. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not follow and each person will not teach his fellow citizen to each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he declared that the first is old, and what is old and aging is about to disappear. And so he goes on in the book of Hebrews and basically explains that God had not abandoned his promises to Israel, but that a new covenant was going to come. Why? Because the people of Israel had broken the old covenant. God didn't break it. They broke it. 
And because they broke it, it was not going to be able to bring to fulfillment all of the promises that God had made to Israel. And so God was going to bring along this new one. And again, the main reason why all that took place was to show mankind that we can never earn our way to God. Because we think that. We think either we can be good enough, or if I just, just tell me the laws of God, I'll keep them. Okay. All right. That's why, in fact, that's, that's another reason why the Pharisees got so mad at Jesus is because when you read the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus, I believe, is basically explaining the real meaning of the law of God. And when he does so, you know, there's that section that we refer to a great deal where he talks about anger, he talks about adultery, and basically explains to them that you think you've done well because you've not committed adultery. And Jesus says, yeah, you have. But then Jesus says, but I say, if you look at a woman and you lust after her, you notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you're just like an adulterer. He doesn't say you're as bad as an adulterer. He says you are one. That's pretty strong. So a lot of the Pharisees, you know, they're pretty proud because, you know, they're the ones who bragged about their ability to keep the law. And here's Jesus coming along saying, oh, by the way, it's not just outwardly, it's inwardly. And they all knew they were guilty. That's why when that woman was caught in adultery and they, they were testing Jesus and they said, uh, you know, what does the law say we should do to her? Well, you kept someone in adultery, they were stoned to death. Jesus just says, okay. Those of you without sin, cast the first stone. Now, some say, and I have to do some more research because I'm not sure on this, but I've heard some guys who Hebrew is their native language say that when Jesus said to them, he who is without sin, what he was saying is, he who is without the same kind of sin, cast the first stone. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. It may be. But the bottom line is, is that the Bible clearly tells us that when Jesus made that statement, they basically dropped the rocks and everybody went. They all left. Oldest and so then that's when Jesus asked the woman, where's your accusers? The oldest first. Yeah, starting with the oldest. Because <laughs> the oldest always have the most sin. Right? Because we've had longer to sin. That's how it is. We all know that to be true. Um, so absolutely. So what we see here then is that this attempt by the individual to try to show there's this contradiction or that there's fault with God when you begin to read through. But you notice that it's not many times, not always, but many times when it comes to these supposed contradictions, it's not like the sound bite that you get on the news. You know, like if we hear there's going to be, a, when we hear there's severe thunderstorms tonight in Alabama, then tomorrow what we're going to see is on the news is the devastation of the tornadoes. Now, I don't know if you've ever timed it, but sometimes the coverage is 15 seconds. Sometimes it's 30 seconds. If there's a bunch of tornadoes and there's a bunch of devastation, well, they'll go for several minutes. All right, but basically, and, and, what's, and, and sometimes on the radio, the most popular news channel is headline news. You don't even get 30 seconds of the story. You get less than 10 seconds. You know, today in Alabama, three people died from tornadoes that, that, you know, there were five reported tornadoes throughout the night and, you know, 10 people died. Now on to sports, you know, it's just, boom, it's just, you know, and after that, it's, you watch the weather for tonight and they're getting snow in New York and then the next thing you know, it's Hunter Biden's laptop and then as soon as that's over, <laughs> Russia's still bombing the Ukraine and you get all of that in four minutes. All right, so we, see we, we get accustomed to this where we want the really quick answer. And some people actually say, or they think, that if you can't give an answer in 30 seconds, something's up. That's not true, right? I guarantee you this, you go to a doctor tomorrow, and the doctor says, oh, I've got some really bad news, you have, it looks like you have cancer. You don't say, well, you know, doc, doc, I'm in a hurry. So wrap this up in 30 seconds. You know, we usually begin with, are you sure? <laughs> right? And then the doctor says, now, but if the doctor just say, well, I'd like to run a few more tests to be sure, but I've only got 15 seconds. <laughs> We're like, no, 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 no. You got more than 15 seconds. But we don't want to sound by then, right? So we understand there are certain things you're just not going to get an adequate answer in, in 15 or 30 seconds. And when we're dealing with truth, because that's what this is. 
And that's what's at stake, is the truth of the Bible. Because remember what Christians have always said, and we can stand by this. Find a mistake in the Bible. Find a real contradiction. We'll throw it away and renounce Christ. Christians have, I mean, that's a bold statement. Christians have been saying that for years. It used to be, it's, it's no longer done. I don't know the, indi- there was a couple of individuals who, individuals who did this. I don't know their names. But there used to be an ad in the back of certain magazines, and I think Christianity Today was one of them, but there was a challenge. And the challenge was that if any individual could come up with, a, with real error in the Bible, they would be given a check for $100,000. Find a mistake, 100 grand is yours. I guarantee you people have been looking for a long time. No one ever claimed the check. All right? And again, as I mentioned last week, you can go online and you can find, you know, 1,001 mistakes in the Bible. Now, I don't know why it's 1,001. I don't know why it's, why it's not just 1,000. But anyway, it's 1,001. Uh, but some of them, actually many of them are so lame. Yeah, I'm like, I can't even believe they even bothered to put that in there. All right? Because it's clearly not, not a, a problem. But um, that's been going on for a long time. And I want you to so what we what we look at and what we're reading and trying to understand... A lot of times it just answers it and, and makes it, I think, pretty simple, uh, to say the least. So we w- I don't have time to get into this because there's lots of things to explain, but let me just throw this out there and you know where we're going to go to. Uh, it actually won't be next week because I have to go answer questions for the youth. But next time we get together when I'm here, this is what we're going to cover. All right, so people will point out that in the Bible, there's some places where it says that salvation you can't work for it, you can't earn it. And then they'll say, but there's other verses that say that without works, you can't be justified. And they go, clear contradiction, Bible's false. Um, and so I will show you that, once again, uh, what they're saying is not true. Yes, you can find a verse that says one thing, you can find a verse somewhere else that says something else. Uh, but if they take it out of context, or sometimes disregard certain words, or whatever, it looks like there's a contradiction, but there's not. God is not afraid of questions. People have been doing this for a long time, trying to find contradictions in the Bible. There have been actually many believers who have looked hard trying to find contradictions uh, because they were convinced they wouldn't find any, but they they wanted to know what they were. Others have taken on individuals who've said they found these contradictions and spent hours and hours studying uh, to, to come up with a, a really good answer. Not just some that's made up, because some of the contradictions involve numbers. All right? So like, for example, in one place, they'll say that um, you know, 800 men died in that battle. And then in another passage, in maybe another book, it says about the same battle, 1,200 men died. And so they pick up, see, God lied. There's a difference in the numbers. Well, there is a difference in the numbers. It doesn't mean anybody lied. And so, but uh, is there an answer? Actually, there are answers to all of those. Um, and then there are times, just so you know, sometimes you'll, you'll come across, sometimes this is, an, this is, this is a, a reason that's given for certain contradictions that I think is lame because they're not true, but there are times it's true. And, that's, and, that, and so we have to understand the nature of the, of the Bible that we all have. Sometimes, uh, like in certain places in Chronicles and Kings, when, they, when they're telling the same story in each of the different books about the same kind of king, at one point they, they mentioned a king was a certain age when he started ruling. And then in another passage, he was a different age. And if the one passage was true, that means the guy began to rule before he was born. So we know there was a mistake. God didn't make the mistake. In the beginning when the Bible was copied, people did it by hand. But here's the thing. Number one, we know where the mistakes are. Number two, as Christians, we're honest about it. We point it out. In fact, in almost all of your study Bibles, there'll be a notation. And it'll say, in this manuscript it says this, and in this manuscript it says that, and we think it's this. So we Christians are honest about it. Nothing changes. We're, be, we're as open and as honest as we can be. There's no contradiction. There is an answer for that. A, this guy, it wasn't God, but this guy, because he's a human being, just he made a little, little slash when he should have made a dot, but we, but we all know about it, and we point it out. Uh, I guarantee when it comes to other religions and their books, they don't do that. It's kind of like, oh, no, we didn't see that. 
Um, in fact, I know for a fact when it comes to, I'm trying to think of which one it is. Uh, it, may be, it may be with the Jehovah Witnesses. You know, they have their own translation, which isn't a translation. Uh, but through the years, when people would find a mistake where they failed to make a change, because they just changed words they didn't like, um, they would suddenly stop printing that and then print a new one with the, with the change. And they, did, and they would pretend that it was always there, um, kind of a thing. Um, and so you have that kind of thing going on. Uh, but Christianity is, again, God's not afraid of questions. We're not afraid of, we're not afraid of questions. Uh, you know, it's truth. And if you have bona fide questions, you need to ask them. Because the answers are there. They really are. And so we, we can be assured that we are standing on truth. And it has withstood the test of time for literally thousands of years. People have tried to find ways to undermine the Bible. Uh, and they can't. And the best they can come up with is really lame uh, accusations. Um, and it's just not there. So we'll, we'll look at a few more of those in the coming weeks from the act from Scripture. And then we'll spend a little bit of time, just a little bit, talking about some of the, what we call bombs that people throw out there. And so, for example, somebody might say, well, we know the Bible can't be trusted because Genesis says things that goes against science. Is that true? We'll take a look at it. All right? Uh, then you have Muslims who will say, well, you know the Bible's been changed because God didn't have a son. And his, and his supposed son, Jesus, really wasn't crucified. Is that true? How do we know? And so we can, we'll check that out. Uh, and the answer is, they don't really take that long. You just gotta think a little bit, and there's evidence that's out there, and it's, I, again, I think it's really simple to, uh, to figure out. So hopefully, um, this will help you at least, again, you're not, you may not have all this stuff memorized, but just know this, the answers are there. And, there, and besides the websites that mention the, the supposed contradictions, there are also at the same time, dozens and dozens and dozens of websites of individuals who will who are trying to answer those things and so a lot of it you can look up on your own so if you ever get someone tells you well i don't believe the bible full of contradictions and they go well, what about that da, 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 you can actually look it up and you can look and read what the answers are and check it out for yourself and realize that uh you know they're just giving you a bunch of hot air it's not really a contradiction uh, a lot of work's been done so there are some really great things with the internet some horrible things too, but there's a lot of great things. Uh, you have at your fingertips uh, the kind of information that you used to you used to go to a specialized library to try to get, and now it's just right there at your fingertips. You just bust out your phone and you got it. Uh, the answers are there. Anyway, let's pray. Oh, if you can, uh, we um, we we got more tables to set up. I think in the fellowship hall for the women of light. They have a thing coming up this weekend. It. If you can help, it'd be great. It shouldn't take that long. We're just moving some tables out and some round tables in. You know, bang, bang, we're done. But uh, we're ending a little early today, so hopefully we won't be disturbing anyone in the fellowship. I don't know who's in there. Uh, but we'll just smile and be polite. And um, we'll move the tables, and it'll all be good. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your kindness and grace. We thank you, Father, that uh, there have been individuals who really have spent hours and hours studying your word looking at the minutia of things at times, to come up with very real and solid answers to the supposed contradictions that are pointed out in the Bible. We thank you, Lord, that really these attacks have been going on for hundreds of years. Because, Father, all that has happened is it has proved through the years that your Bible has always been true and that we can trust everything it says, whether we're talking about how long a certain king ruled or how it is that a man can be reconciled to God. And so, Father, we are grateful that we have the word of God to stand on and, and to possess and to read and study that we may know you. We ask now, Lord, that you would dismiss us with your kindness and grace, that you watch over us and keep us safe. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.